August the 11th of 1981 was when our department received the first communication with the Snedeker family. Snedeker is the maiden name of Laura Lynn Morris, the deceased in this case. One of the deceased, I might add. Uh, that's only conjecture on my part. I suppose I probably shouldn't say that. Malcolm Grass had received the first contact with Gertrude Snedeker, who I will probably refer to as Trudy, because that's what everybody knows her by. It was about 1.30 that afternoon, on August the 11th, 1981, that she spoke to Malcolm Grass, who was then sheriff of the Hancock County Sheriff's Department, in reference to her daughter missing. As I remember it, Malcolm was somewhat busy, and after hearing the initial complaint, referred her to me. I was the only detective on the department at that time. On September 15, 1989, Detective Sergeants John Mann and Herb Clear of the Indiana State Police interviewed John Munden in order to pick his brain, their words, on the Laura Morris investigation. The transcript itself is almost 50 pages, and what follows are John Munden's exact responses to the questions that he was asked. With a little help from a voice narrator, I have reconstructed this conversation. One of the first questions that Munden was asked is if he knew Laura or anyone in her family when the case was referred to him on the day in question. Never heard of them. I took Trudy Snedeker into my office and on our initial field notes, and she told me a little bit of background about the family and said that basically the family had owned a waste oil business in the Greenfield area and had since sold it to somebody and had moved to Florida. I probably at this point should give you a little background on the family itself as I understand it. Steve and Gertrude Snedeker are originally from Ohio, and they had four children, two boys and two girls. They came here, as I can tell, from Ohio after being moved about different parts of the country prior to 1979. I think was when they started the waste oil business in Greenfield. 78 or 79, and they negotiated a sale to Camor Oil out of St. Louis, Missouri, and this would have been in May of 1981. At that time, Laura and Brenda, both daughters, were working at the waste oil business, which was located on Oshid Street here in Greenfield. When they sold out to Camor, it was my understanding that the two boys went to Florida with their mother and father and started another waste oil business down there. And I think at that time, it was known as North Florida Oil. That left the two girls up here. Uh, that would have been just shortly after Laura Morris had got a divorce from Bryce Morris. And Brenda, who is married to a guy named Dan Chalice, was living just somewhere in the Greenwood area, south side of Indianapolis, Greenwood. And from time to time, Laura was staying with her sister, Brenda, and her brother-in-law, Danny. After the sale of the oil business here, Laura decided to move into her parents' home, which was located at 73 Shadeland Drive here in Greenfield, just two miles south of town, and look after the house because all their personal belongings were basically still there and they had the house up for sale. So the family told me this helped Laura and would also help them because they would have somebody to babysit the house. During a conversation, which would have been on August the 9th, according to Trudy Snedeker, she had a telephone conversation with Laura, and she told me that she felt Laura was somewhat despondent 
and she felt it necessary to make a trip up to visit Laura, kind of build her up a little bit, and also visit Brenda. I asked her what she was despondent about. She said, you know, she still wasn't over the divorce. Plus, the divorce decree had stated in there that Brandy, their three-year-old daughter, would spend the entire month of August in Goshen, Indiana with Bryce, the father. And Brandy had been gone a few days, and she was in that house by herself, and with the divorce, and now her daughter being with the father, she was lonesome and just needed somebody to talk to. That's according to Trudy. So she felt it necessary to come up and build her up a little bit, and also talk, be with Brenda, her other daughter. Uh, according to Danny's wife, which was Brenda, and the other people I talked to, boyfriends and friends, Laura had agreed to pick Trudy up at the airport somewhere around 8 o'clock that night, on August the 10th, which would have been a Monday night. She drove there in her father's black Chevrolet pickup truck, and that will become real important later on in this conversation. She stopped at a guy's house named Winston Roberts a little after 7. Winston Roberts was a week-long boyfriend that she'd only known a week and she met him at Ivy Tech, where she was enrolled the week before. She told Winston that her mother was coming up, and she was on her way to the airport to pick her up, but before she went to the airport, she was going to pick up Brenda at her apartment in Greenwood, and the two of them was then going to the airport to pick up their mother. This is consistent with what Brenda told me. Brenda and Laura had made arrangements with Danny, who was going to go to the airport with them, but then decided that he would go ahead and play handball. That he would meet them around 9 for coffee at a place in Greenwood Mall. According to Trudy, this happened. According to Brenda, that happened. They picked Trudy up, stopped and waited about 50 minutes, and Danny showed up and the four of them had coffee. And I think a couple of them had a piece of pie or something. They left there and went to Brenda's apartment and stayed there for about 30 minutes. And Danny and Brenda says they don't really know why, because they never really got to talk to her. But it appeared that Laura did not want to go home that night. She wanted to spend the night there at her sister's apartment, and then go home the next day. And uh, not knowing something was going to happen that night or the next day, they didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. But when they looked back on it, it just seemed like it was an impression that Laura did not want to go home. Uh, and like the mother, according to Brenda, demanded that they go home. So that's the last time that Brenda and Danny saw Laura, according to them. So that kind of gives you a background on how the family started here and went to Florida, and how she came up here. During my conversations with Trudy the next day, on the 11th, she basically told me the same story. I asked her why. Why was it that Laura seemed a little hesitant about coming home? And she said... Well, she probably knew. We was probably going to have a discussion over her no-good ex-husband. And she probably thought that if we stayed there at Brenda's apartment, I wouldn't bring it up, and we wouldn't have to talk about it. She says, that's the only thing I can think of. I said, did you have any arguments? She says, as a matter of fact, we did have. We came around 465 on our way to Greenfield. Laura started telling me how she was looking forward to getting back with Bryce, and they thought they was going to get things worked out, and he was going to take me on a second honeymoon to Hawaii. 
and I told her the son of a bitch couldn't afford to take you to Goshen, Indiana, let alone Hawaii. And I said, is that the extent of the argument? And she said, yeah, but we didn't speak a whole lot more the rest of the way home. So I said, what happened when you got home? She said, well, I was tired because of the trip up here on the plane, and I wanted to go to bed because I had a busy day ahead the next day. Had to go do some different things, do some banking. Laura was supposed to put a couple of applications in for employment, and I felt I ought to go to bed early. I asked her what time she went to bed. She said about 10.30. I asked, what was Laura doing when you went to bed? She said Laura had become a night-type person, and she chose to stay up and watch TV. And she said she was going to go to bed probably, you know, 1 or 2 a.m. I asked her how Laura was dressed when she went to bed. She told me that Laura always slept in her underpants and one of her father's longman's t-shirts, even when she was married. And that was consistent with Bryce, too that that's all Laura ever slept in, was one of her father's t-shirts. So I said, do you know for a fact that she got ready for bed that night? And she said, yes. After she got ready for bed, and I got ready for bed, we sat down on the couch, and we drank a glass of orange juice. We said goodnight, and I went to bed in my bedroom, and Laura was sitting on the couch. Had her cigarettes there, said she was going to watch some TV, and she would be to bed later. This was about 10.30 that Monday night. She said about 11, the phone rang, and she knew it wasn't for her because nobody other than Steve, her husband, and the two boys in Florida knew she was going to be there, and she knew it wasn't them. She said the phone rang once or twice, and she didn't hear it anymore. So she assumed, based on that, it was probably for Laura, because she had spent the previous two weeks there. She put the time right at 11 because she heard Benny Hill on TV. I checked that and it came on at 11 that night. Also, the telephone records showed that Bryce called her at 11.01 that night. Bryce's statement is that about 15 till 11, Laura called him there at his parents' house in Goshen, where he was staying. He had his girlfriend there, and he didn't want to tell Laura, so he made some excuse that he was doing dishes, and I'll call you right back. And he said that's why he called about 11. That's probably, I'm sure it happened, his records show that a phone call was made from that number to the Snediger number at 11.01. That's consistent with what Shruti said she heard around 11, that the phone rang. So I think that happened. Did the long-distance logs on the Snediger's phone show... We have a problem with phone records there. And probably now is as good a time as any to talk about that. About a week after the investigation was started, Malcolm and I were down there asking the family further questions. And one of the things that I had requested was the telephone records. And Trudy says, you know, that's no problem. I said, well, I can get them, but I've got to get a subpoena. But if you will authorize it, you can go get them and give them to us, and we can bypass the subpoena. She said, okay, I'll do that. So nothing was said for about another week. And Malcolm asked me, did we ever get those telephone records? I said, I asked Trudy that just yesterday, and she said she gave them to you. He said she never gave me any phone records. So I spoke to Trudy the next day, and I says, Malcolm says he didn't get the phone records. She said, well, I would have sworn I gave them to him. I don't know where they're at. And so this went on. She kept playing games with us as far as I'm concerned. We never did get the phone records. 
I don't think she ever gave them to Malcolm. Malcolm wouldn't lie about that, but she still insisted that she gave them to Malcolm. As a result, no, we never did see their phone records. And by the time we insisted on them again, they had already disposed of them, according to John Raglan at Indiana Bell. I kind of got off on a tangent. I don't know where I was. I was talking about Bryce. Had called down here about 11. During that conversation, Bryce said that Laura seemed to, like she was in a real good mood, and had even talked about the possibility of the two of us getting back together. He said, I liked Laura, but I had lost my love for her. I really didn't want to get back together, but I didn't come out and tell her that, in so many words. But it was obvious to me that that's what she wanted to do. I asked, is anything else, anything unusual about the conversation? He said, yeah, there was. Laura had mentioned the fact that her mother was up there from Florida, but she was not there. And he said, now I find out that she was there. So he said, I don't know what that means, if anything. So I said, is it possible that you misunderstood her? He says, no. Fact is, she told me that she was at Brenda's house. And I said, what do you make of that? Because it was obvious that she was not at Brenda's house. She had been earlier, but at the time she was talking to you, she was right there. Why do you think Laura told you that? He said, I don't know. I said, could it have been because she wanted you to come down there that night, and thinking that if you knew her mother was there, that you wouldn't even consider it, let alone do it? He said, well, I never thought about that. So, anyway, I don't know what it means, but that's the only thing I can think of but he denies coming down here that night. Uh, the next morning, like I said, the last thing the mother, that Trudy remembers, is hearing the phone ring around 11. She woke up the next morning about 6.30 and walked out of the bedroom, into the kitchen, and then to the living room, where she had last saw Laura. And uh, she said the TV had a test pattern on, and there were, or a snowy screen, I'm not sure which, but there was no picture on the TV, and she thought that was a little strange that Laura would be up that early watching TV. She noticed a pole laying on the end of the couch that was not there when she went to bed at 10.30, and she noticed the door that leads outside to the driveway was slightly ajar, a door that she had locked herself prior to going to bed the night before, so she assumed that Laura maybe had went out to get the newspaper or was outside or something. So she turned the TV off and sat down on the couch, and told me that she sat there for five or ten minutes, and that she became a little concerned that Laura had not come back in. So she went over and looked outside, and didn't see Laura. She just shut the door, and then assumed that she was probably in the bathroom or bedroom getting dressed. So she said she sat down another five minutes or so, didn't hear anything, and she said she just had the strangest feeling come over that something wasn't right. So she hollered for Laura, and Laura didn't answer. She went to the bathroom, and Laura wasn't there. The bedroom, and throughout the house, and couldn't find Laura. So she said, I sat there, and I didn't really know what to do. And she said, I sat there for a couple hours. And I said, what did you do in the two hours? And she said, nothing, just sat there. Maybe Laura had went someplace and was coming back. She said about nine o'clock, I called Brenda's apartment to see if, for some reason, she went over there. 
and Brenda wasn't there, but I talked to Danny. Danny and Brenda are Jehovah's Witnesses. According to Brenda and Danny, she was out witnessing for Christ, giving out little leaflets. And during the conversation, Gertrude never mentioned to Danny that anything was wrong, never asked if he had seen Laura or anything, only told Danny when Brenda comes home, have her to call me. Danny had told her that she would be home around noon. This was around 9 o'clock. Danny said Brenda got home a few minutes before 12 and told Brenda that your mother had called and you're supposed to call her. And uh, Danny said that during the conversation, you know, Brenda became hysterical and says, we'll be right over. She got off the phone and Brenda told Danny, Laura's missing and mom's all upset. So the two of them left and went over to the house. When they got there, Trudy had already been down to the sheriff's department and back home, as I understand it. I may have my times off a half hour either way. She first went to the Greenfield Police Department, and then they took the initial report, and then, because she said she lived in Greenfield, it's a Greenfield address, but it's actually county jurisdiction. Well, they sent her over to the sheriff's department. She initially talked to Malcolm, and Malcolm referred her to me because I was a detective. So we sat there and talked, and, like I said, I took the standard information that I normally would, and nothing seemed too unusual. You know, my first feeling was the same as Malcolm. You know, here's a 22-year-old gal that just decided to take off for whatever reason. Until toward the end of the interview that I had with Trudy, I said, Did she take anything with her? Is there anything missing from the house? She said, Well, that's the strange part. There's nothing missing. Even her pocketbook is on the table. That, you know, that bothered me. Because, like I said earlier, my first feeling was that she just took off. But I've always been of the belief that a woman's pocketbook is like a minister's Bible. She's not going to go anywhere without it. That's when I felt real leery that there was more to it than just a, a person deciding to take off. And I told her that. I was right up front with her. I said, I, you know, I don't think she took off. And I said, maybe, maybe I'm jumping the gun, but my gut feeling is she didn't take off on her own. She says, why do you say that? I said, well, you told me her pocketbook was there. She says, what does that mean? And I told her basically what I told you. And she said, well, I never thought about that. I find that hard to believe that she wouldn't have thought of that too, but she claims she never. So I told her that I would come down to the house later on and look around. Uh, Bill Applegate, who was just getting into investigation, and I think still working the road at the time, uh, we were getting ready to go down there, and they gave me a burglary and said there was some evidence there, and Bill went down with me, and we collected some evidence of the burglary. We left there, as I remember it, and went to the Snedeker residence. We got there, and I was introduced to Danny and Brenda. And those were the only three people there, other than myself and Bill Applegate, was Danny and Brenda and Gertrude Snedeker. Danny told me that he had started walking the fields and different things, and said something ain't right. He and I talked off to the side, and I told him what I thought, that something was drastically wrong. Because by this time, you know, we're talking about five o'clock in the afternoon, and it just didn't look right. So I asked Gertrude about a list of friends and different things, so we could start calling them, and she gave Applegate, Laura's pocketbook, 
and Applegate went through it as I remember. Found a telephone book in there and wrote down possibly 20 names of different people. Some of the people Gertrude knew as being friends or boyfriends. Some names she wasn't even familiar with. So we went back to the jail and started the process of calling people and nobody had seen or heard from her for a couple of days. During that initial conversation, the initial contact there at the house, she told me that she had made contact with Stephen, and he was on his way up here likewise from Florida. And she had told me that he was a pilot and had his own plane. I assumed that he would probably just fly up, either in his own plane or commercially, given the circumstances that we had at that time. So I called her that night, which was Tuesday night around 9, and wanted to know if Steve was up there yet. She said, well, he won't be up till tomorrow afternoon. I said, why is he waiting so long? You all seemed real concerned about your daughter missing. Why the delay? She said, well, he's chose to drive up here. I thought that was a little strange, but, you know, whatever they want to do. So the next afternoon, basically from that point Tuesday night, we didn't do a whole lot except make some contact with some friends and didn't learn anything. So the next morning, we did much of the same thing, and Malcolm expressed a little interest in the case because it did look a little different than just a random missing person at that point. And it seemed like one or two that afternoon, I get a call from Gertrude that Steve is there now, and he wants to meet me and to talk to me about this. So myself and Bill Applegate, and uh, I'm not sure whether Malcolm was there at that point or not on Wednesday afternoon, but I walked in and introduced myself and here stands Steve Snedeger. Looks like a typical truck driver. Had on blue jeans and his shirt tail was hanging out and looked like he hadn't shaved for a couple of days. Looked like he had just drove a truck up here from Florida, not a car. And uh, Trudy had told me that they were millionaires. And I, I guess I expected to see something a little different from what I saw. But I introduced myself and the first words out of his mouth was, Detective Munden, I don't think we're going to find her alive. And I thought that was a little strange that a father would be that quick to make that kind of statement, you know. Only a day after his daughter was missing. And I mentioned it. I said, that seems a little strange that you would say that. He said, what do you think? And I said, well, I'm going to be honest with you. It doesn't look good. He said, there's more to this. I said, obviously that's true. But, you know, we'll get to the bottom of it. And I tried to pacify him and uh, he said... What are you going to do? I said, uh, well, we're contacting friends and relatives, trying to find out if anybody had seen her or talked to her. You know, I guess it's possible she took off and didn't take the pocketbook, but I don't think it's too likely. And uh, I said, do you have any suggestions what we should do at this point? Because you know the situation far better than we do. He says, I don't know what to think of the whole thing. I said, I understand you own a business. He said, yeah, and he told me a little bit about that, and uh, told me that he had tried to sell it to a couple of people, and that that deal didn't go through, and they ended up selling to Cam Orr out of St. Louis. I said, what's the chances that somebody, I said, have you made any enemies in your business? He said, you make all kinds of enemies in the business where I am, and I says, bad enough that they would do something to your daughter? He says, I don't know. If it is business-related, it has to be one of two people. And I said, who's that? And he said, the two Tonys. I said, who, Tony who? 
He said, the two Tonys that tried to buy the business back in March or April of this year. I said, tell me a little bit about it. Uh, he didn't tell me a whole lot. He did say, why don't you go ahead and work on her boyfriends and, uh, he says, I know you don't have a very big department. Let me talk to these two Tonys, and if I get into anything, I'll get back with you. So it sounded fair to me. I couldn't talk to everybody all at once. So, uh, about a week later, Steve was coming up to the sheriff's office about 6.30 every morning. I was working 18 hours a day on this case. It's the only thing I was working on. I had done that for several weeks, probably several months till I started getting too much criticism from a lot of people that I was spending too much time on it, so I slacked off a little bit. I worked on it a lot on my own, but Steve would come to my office at 6.30 every morning and sat there and drink or eat a biscuit and gravy out of a styrofoam carton that he had got at one of the local restaurants. And he basically stayed with me or in contact with me all during the day till midnight when I went home or something. And it was that way every day. Like I started to say earlier, about a week after all this started, he was there in my office and said, I'm going to talk to Tony Lambert in New Orleans. I said, who's Tony? Is Tony Lambert one of the two Tonys you were talking about? And he said, yeah. I says, New Or... What? Why New Orleans? You know, what's New Orleans got to do with this whole thing? He says, well, Steve calls everybody rascal. He says that rascal just won't tell you the truth if he's around here. He says, I've got to get him on my own turf and talk to him. And I said, well, if he wants to go to New Orleans, fine. I don't totally understand that, but I'm not really concerned at this point. He said, I, I told you that. When I would do something on this case, I'll let you know beforehand. I'm telling you that I'm going to talk with this guy. I'm going to flip the tape over here, John. Yeah, Steve told me. And I first said a week, but it's probably close to two weeks after this started that, the first week in September anyway, that Steve Snedeker had a conversation with me and advised me that he was going to meet with Tony Lambert in New Orleans to determine whether he knew anything about his daughter's disappearance. He also told me that he had coerced Tony into coming down there. Actually, he lied to him. He told him he was going to help him set up his business down there and finance him if he would come down there and look at some of the property in the setup, and he wanted him to run the waste oil business for him. He was going to finance him, and that's how he said he got him to go down there. Had you ever talked to Tony? Never heard of him. Okay. No, I'd never talked to him. So he told me that Tony had agreed to come down there, thinking he was coming down there to go into business with Snedeker. When, in fact, Snedeker's only thing was to see if he knew anything about his daughter's disappearance. It bothered me that he had done it that way, but, you know, there's no violation there. And I didn't understand it, nor did I really care at that point, because I had enough other things going on that if he wanted to jump around the country and talk to people, that was fine. I only asked one thing in return, that he keep me appraised of the situation, which he says he did. That's the last I heard about Tony, till about four days later. I got a call from a Detective Beard from the Hamilton County Sheriff's Department. I'm sorry, from the Carmel City Police Department in Hamilton County and I had known Beard on a couple of other cases, had worked on some auto thefts. And he said, 
are you working on this missing girl that I've seen on TV and heard on the radio? And I said, yeah. He said, we may have another problem here. I said, what's that? He said, supposedly, this Steve Snediger, the father of this Laura Morris, arranged for a meeting with Tony in New Orleans, and he hasn't been seen since. And I said, well, that's exactly what he told me he was going to do. Have a meeting. I said, what do you mean he hasn't been seen since? He says, well, within the last hour, we just took a missing person report on him from his wife, Bonnie Lambert, and she was crying and scared, and that she was afraid that Steve Snedeker had done something to her husband. I said, did she have a reason to make that kind of allegation? He said, I don't know but what she told us, and she thought that we ought to contact you because she had seen you on TV, and she knew that you were working on the case, and maybe you knew some more about it. I said, the only thing I knew is Steve told me he was going to meet her husband, or Lambert, down there. And that's the last I've heard. He said, well, that meeting supposedly happened because Lambert called his wife and said he had bought her a plane ticket and wanted her to come down there the next day because he and Steve were going to have a meeting. This was on a Monday night that Lambert called his wife, Bonnie, and told her that Steve and I are having are going to meet for breakfast tomorrow morning and talk about this business deal. And he says, it sounds like it's going to go through. I have already bought you a ticket, and I want you to come down Tuesday afternoon, and we're going to start looking for a house, because he's going to put up a bunch of money, which includes us a house. But he said, just in case the house doesn't go through, and we have to postpone looking for the house, call me about noon Tuesday at my motel or my hotel, just to make sure everything is still go but I'm sure it is. Tony must have been convinced in his mind that it was going to go through because he actually purchased a ticket, which Paul Weiler and I found. The phone call. She called down there at noon Tuesday like he told her to and found out that Tony was not in his room. Uh, they wasn't sure whether he had checked out or was just gone, but they kept ringing the room and no answer. She was scheduled to leave, I think like, 3.27 Indianapolis time, she even went to the airport and kept calling and still didn't get an answer. Because she didn't get an answer, she did not make the trip to New Orleans. She went back home the next day, and she cried all during the night. And the next day, about noon, she went to the Carmel Police Department and talked to Beard and turned in a missing persons report. Beard called the authorities in New Orleans, and they said, You know, big deal. We've had a lot of people missing. We're not concerned about somebody from Indiana. And Beard said, You know, there's nothing I can do, and seems like you know more about the case than I do, so you know. If you find out anything, will you let me know? And I agreed to that. I asked Steve about it the next day. I went down to his house, and I said, Steve, we've got a little bit of a problem with Tony Lambert. He said, What's that? I said, His wife has turned him in as missing. He said, I wonder where the little rascal's at. I said, did you have the meeting with him like you told me you did on the phone? He says, yeah. I said, was anybody else there? He said, yeah. Buck was with me. I said, tell me about the meeting in detail. He said, we ate breakfast together in the restaurant, there at the hotel, in the French Quarter, some French hotel or something. And uh, he said, uh, I just came, put my cards right on the table, and told him, I wasn't interested in going into business with him, and I just wanted to know if he knew anything about my daughter's disappearance. 
He said he got irate and pissed off and told me to go to hell and said just left the hotel and got into a maroon Thunderbird with some blonde-headed gal and said he was going fishing. And uh, I said, that's it? And he said, yep, I haven't seen him since. I said, do you know this has been three days now and his Corvette, his 1981 Corvette, this is 1981 we're talking about, is sitting in the parking lot of the hotel and he hasn't been seen since? He said, well, maybe he's taking a three-day vacation fishing because he's got some friends down there. I said, Steve, come on now. He's got this room rented. He's probably paying a hundred bucks a day. His Corvette is, that he's leased, is sitting in the parking lot. Nobody's seen him. He hasn't contacted his wife. He had made arrangements to bring her down there. Now there's more to it, Steve. Steve said, hey, that's what happened. Do what you want to, but I don't know anything about this. I got him down there just like I told you I was going to, and it was apparent that he did not know anything about my daughter's disappearance. He got pissed off and left. He went fishing. So I said, okay. About a month later, I had an occasion to talk to Buck Estes, the guy that was with him. He told me about the same story, except he said that Tony got mad and got into a white car with somebody. He didn't know whether it was a man or a woman. And I said, Buck, that is not the same description of the car that Steve gave me. He said, well, I'm almost sure it was a white car. White Cadillac, he said. So based on that story, I went back to Steve, and Steve told me a green Oldsmobile or something. None of the three matched. Three inconsistent stories about what kind of car he got into. So that takes care of Tony. He hasn't been seen since. And nobody, Paul and I contacted the, uh, well, I did, because this was obviously before Paul got involved in the case, contacted detectives down there, and reluctantly they went out and interviewed the people at the hotel. And this, none of the stuff was in the room. The car was still there locked up in the parking lot, and they didn't know anything about his whereabouts. Were his clothes or anything still? There was nothing in the room. Nothing in the room. But his wife said he only took the clothes he had. She was supposed to bring his clothes down. He took one change of clothes with him. Nothing was ever found in the room. Fact is, at our request, the red Corvette stayed there in the parking lot for about 30 days before we gave the owner of the car. He had it leased from Carson Ford in Brownsburg. We gave them permission to move the car. So it stayed there for at least 30 days before, and nobody touched it. It's apparent to me that something happened that day, and you know, uh... Do you think Buck is reliable? Yeah, I do. I... This is a gut feeling. My personal opinion is, Buck was taken along for an alibi. I think, again, it's only an opinion. I think that Steve had already decided, no matter what the outcome of that meeting, was to have something done to Lambert. Because I think he was convinced, in his mind that Lambert was responsible for his daughter's disappearance. I think he had another person, and maybe it was a woman in a white Cadillac, or a maroon Thunderbird, or a green Olds. But I think Buck was taken down there by Steve, so he could have a witness. Yep, that's what happened. Steve never done anything. We had our meeting, and we came back. But I think Steve had already arranged it with a third person to take care of Lambert. How about the phone call from Lambert? 
You think they had a previous meeting or a later meeting on what Lambert told his wife about? No. This is what uh, Lambert told his wife that he had, his latest contact with Steve that afternoon. Lambert had called Steve in Greenfield and said, You know, I'm down here. I thought you were going to be down here. Steve put him off till the next morning. He said, I'll meet you for breakfast. And he says, You know, go ahead and make the arrangements because everything looks good. I'm bringing some money down with me to get you started. Based on that, he, he had the rest of the day to do basically nothing. So he, I assume, went to the airport or went someplace and bought the ticket and called his wife and told her, hey, it looks good. Steve called and, you know, I've had a conversation with Steve and he's bringing the money down and everything looks good. And I've already got your ticket and I want you to come down tomorrow. But he never did. But he says, call me, just in case something goes wrong before you fly down here. Because there's no sense in wasting $357 for that ticket if the deal doesn't go through. So she agreed to call before she left. She did that and never made contact. So she didn't go down. Uh, when Paul got involved in the case, uh, because his wife owns Carefree Travel Agency, where we were able to use her computer to do some things... We tracked down that ticket. The ticket was bought on the day that Bonnie Lambert said it was there in New Orleans. I think it was American Airlines or something, but it was $357. So we had that documentation that that ticket was actually purchased by Lambert. He signed for it. Uh, she ended up, I think, within 30 days cashing the ticket in for the money because he paid cash for it. Uh, so that basically takes care of Tony. Nobody in New Orleans was ever able to come up with anything? I mean, to this date you still have a discrepancy in what vehicle it was? Yeah. Okay. This whole case is full of discrepancies administered by Steve Snediger, which we'll get to a little bit later. Uh, anyway, I spent much of the next several months interviewing people, working with psychics, and everybody else that would work with me, and checking all kinds of leads. Because of the publicity it generated in the newspaper and on the radio and on the TV, we were getting 20 to 30 calls a day, and I tried to check out everything I could, and everything led to a dead end. And we had people seeing her at the same time in six different states, you know, but I checked out what I could. But I spent the next several months working on that. Also, I asked the state police to help, and they kept saying no. You know, you may be right... There may be a murder here. There may be a kidnapping. But, you know, she was 22. You know, unless you can show us something else, we're not going to get involved. I think Paul wanted to, but I think he probably got turned down by his boss and said no. Then, on April 15th... Well, now let me stop there. Let me go back and talk about another person that's missing in this case. Chuck Smith. Charles Darwin Smith from Knightstown. And before we talk about his disappearance, let me give you just a little bit of background on him. Chuck Smith was a former employee of JNS Oil, which was Snedeker's waste oil business here in Greenfield. He was a truck driver. During the time that he worked there, he had a motorcycle accident on State Road 9, as I remember it, and broke his leg and ended up having him in the hospital for several weeks. And he went back to work, but Snedeker really didn't want him around because of the liability 
because he had a brace on his leg and all that, and he didn't think he could function properly, and he was afraid if he got hurt, he was going to get sued. So Snedeker basically asked him to leave. Short of firing him, he strongly suggested it would be in his best interest if he left. So Chuck left. Chuck heard about Laura's disappearance, and Chuck knew Laura quite well because they worked together there at the waste oil business. On Saturday, which would have been the 17th or 18th of August, the first weekend after she disappeared, whichever day that was, it was on. The first time it ever appeared on TV was on a on Saturday night. They had this news brief, and then it was on the 11 o'clock news. Chuck claims that he saw Laura's picture on TV and said, this girl's missing from Greenfield. If anybody has information, contact the Hancock County Sheriff's Department. Uh, he saw that on TV, and rather than come to the Sheriff's Department, the next day on Saturday, he went to Snedeker's house, and he talked to Joe and Trudy, and he never came to the police department. <clears throat> About two weeks after the case started, Chuck's name came up on the list to be interviewed because he was a former employee. So I... I liked to never made contact with him. I finally, after making two trips to Nicetown and leaving my card, he called and said, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I need to talk to you about Laura Morris. I can either come over there or you can come over here, either one. He said, well, I've got to come to Greenfield anyway. I'll just stop in your office. I said, okay. He came in that afternoon and sat down. And I introduced myself, and we just kind of talked like we are now. And uh, I said, tell me everything you know about Laura. First of all, have you seen her? He says no. And he said, some of these questions seem a little strange. I said, why do they seem strange? He says, you know, I've told a bunch of stuff to the Senegers. Didn't they tell you? And I said, no. He said, well, that's what I thought, because some of the questions you're asking, you should know the answer to, because I talked with Trudy just last week. I said, what did you tell Trudy? He said the day that, one day, two weekends ago, I think it was the day before she disappeared, when I was trying to put the puzzle together, while I was working at the Cockling Station, which is at the edge of Greenfield, he said it was definitely on a Sunday morning, uh, Laura pulled in the gas station on that Sunday's morning in her truck, a green Ford truck. Not her father's, but a green Ford truck. And he said, that's not unusual because she bought all her gas there, I think. And she always come in and howdy-doody with me and, uh, fact is, I asked her out. Even though I was married, I asked her out. And he said, I don't want my wife to know that, though. I said, no problem. So, uh, he said, this morning she came, and I walked out like I always do, and was going to say hi to her, and I noticed there was a guy in the truck with her that I didn't know. And Laura didn't smile, she didn't say a word other than $10 worth of gas. And he said, I've never seen, she was like a zombie compared to what she normally is. And uh, he said, I felt that was strange, but I went to the back of the truck and started to put gas in it. I'm standing there pumping the gas, and I looked up in her mirror, and I see her staring at me. And he said, there's no doubt in my mind that she was scared. I said, scared of what? He said, I don't know. Maybe it was the guy that was with her, because he was kind of strange. 
I said, how was he strange? He said, after I got the gas pumped, I started to walk back up to the driver's door to get the $10. He jumped out real grouch-like and says, I'll pay for it. And he says, fine. So we walked back around and met the guy behind the truck to give him $10. Said he kind of stared at him, didn't say another word, got back in the truck. Said he looked up and seen Laura, and he said there was no doubt in my mind Laura was afraid of that guy. And they left. So he says then, I, a week later, I see this on TV about her missing, so I thought maybe that was related. So I went down and told the Snedegers. They didn't tell you about that? And I said, no. That pissed me off. So I finished my interview with Chuck, and I immediately went down to Snedeker's house, and uh, Steve was not there. Trudy was there, and Joe was there. I says, Trudy, did Chuck Smith come down here last week and tell you of what he saw a couple of days before Laura disappeared? Oh yeah, I forgot to tell you about that. I said, how in the hell can you forget to tell me something that could be that important? She said, well, we think he made it up. We think he just wants to, he's seen all the stuff on TV, and he wants to get his name in the paper. I said, let me decide what's important and what's not. And like I said, it pissed me off. So, based on that, I get a hold of Chuck a couple of days later, and asked him if he would be willing to take a polygraph test. He said, sure, anything I can do to help. He took and passed the polygraph test. He took and passed the PSE test. We put him under hypnosis, and there's no doubt in my mind what he saw happened. And the examiners that tested him, and the hypnotist that put him under hypnosis, said he's been completely truthful. I don't know what that means. I did know what it meant at the time, but this would have been in October or November that these polygraph tests were going on. I don't have a whole lot more contact with Steve or with Chuck until, like, February or March of 1982. And, uh... The reason I regained contact with him was because of Trudy. She made a couple of trips up here and wanted to meet with me at the jail. And on one occasion, Joe came with her, and she wanted Chuck Smith's home phone number. And I said, no, I can't give it to you. It's an unlisted number, and I don't give out people's unlisted numbers. I said, besides that, you know where he lives. You're the one that provided me with that info. His employment information, which included his address but not his phone number. And, uh, you know, if you want to see him for whatever reason, you know where he lives there in Knightstown. She said, well, I don't want to drive over there. I said, well, you came all the way from Florida to see me to get a phone number. Another ten minutes, you can be in Knightstown. She said, well, I don't really need to see him about anything. We just feel bad that he lost his job because of cooperating with you taking polygraph tests, and uh, being hypnotized. He may have lost his job because he missed so much work. We're going to try and find him a job. Well, I thought that was nice of them. So, uh, I said, but I still am not going to give you the phone number. I said, I will call Chuck and tell him to get a hold of you, and I'll ask him if it's alright to give you his number. So, she said, well, we've got to go back to Florida. I'll call you tomorrow. Well, she called me the next morning. I said, I still haven't made contact with him, and I'm still not going to give you the number because, you know, I, I'm not. 
and I'd do the same thing for you, Trudy. If you asked me not to give somebody your number, I wouldn't do that. She said, well, we're just going to try and find him a job. I said, well, I'm sure he will appreciate that. He's been without a job for a couple of months. Another couple of days is not going to make any difference. So, one thing or another came up. I never even tried to make contact with him. I actually forgot about him and got on to something else. About a week later, Trudy comes back to my office. This time, I think she was by herself, and uh, she said, I really would like to have his phone number. I said, Trudy, I'm not going to give you his phone number. Anyway, she finally talked me into it. So I gave her the phone number, and she left. About two days later, either the next day or two days after that, I get a phone call from Chuck Smith. He is irate as hell. He said, why in the fuck did you give Snedegers my phone number? I said, Chuck, they told me they was going to try and find you a job, and I know you need a job, because I talked to your wife, and she said you didn't have a job, and it was causing some problems in the family. He said, okay, that explains the phone call I got. I said, what phone call? He said some guy had started a trucking company in Knoxville, Tennessee, and said Steve Snedeger said I was a good truck driver and told him to give me a call because he was needing some truck drivers. The guy's wanting me to come down and go to work for him. And I said, well, see people help you just like they said they was. He said, okay, I just wanted to make sure there wasn't no more to it. I said, that's all I know. That was on a Thursday. On Tuesday morning, his wife and her father come to my office, and she's crying and hysterical. And I said, what's wrong, Lynn? She said, Steve has done something to Chuck like he did Lambert, because everybody by this time knew that we all suspected that Lambert had met his demise at the hands of Steve Snedeger. And I said, what do you mean he's done something to Chuck? like Tony Lambert. She says, Remember the guy from Carmel that you think Snedeker killed or had killed? I says, Yeah. She says, Well, I think he's done something to Chuck now. I said, What are you talking about? And I had to calm her down. I got her a Coke, and she finally said this guy who identified himself as John Rogers had called on two occasions. She says, Fact is, Chuck called you about it. And I said, yeah, he called me yesterday, or the day before, and said that a guy had called from Knoxville, Tennessee. She said the guy's name is John Rogers. Started a trucking company down there, and had made arrangements with Chuck to get on a bus, go down, and after he worked a couple of weeks, he was going to have enough money to bring me and the kids down. Or the kid. They only had one kid. And were going to just move down there. And I said, okay. So why, why are you crying? She said, well, he left Sunday and he was supposed to call Sunday night. He didn't call. He didn't call Monday, didn't call Monday night, and I've spent all Monday night and this morning and nobody's ever heard of the John Rogers Trucking Company. So I pacified her and said, well, I'm sure there's a reasonable explanation. And I basically got rid of them. I thought to myself, oh fuck. So I called Snedeker in Florida. I said, who's John Rogers? He said, 
Who? And I knew right then we've got a problem. I said, John Rogers. He supposedly got a trucking company in Knoxville, Tennessee, and you referred Chuck Smith to him. He said, No, I never heard of a John Rogers. He said, I certainly wouldn't refer that son of a bitch to anybody. So I says, Is Trudy there? He says, No, she's not here, but if you need to talk to her, I'll have her call. So she called a couple of days later, and I told her. She said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, Well, Trudy, you were in my office to get his phone number, and you asked me not to tell Steve about it, and I, I don't understand what the hell's going on, but something is not right here. She said, Well, I had the boys hang up our business card in truck stops as they was out picking up waste oil all over Florida and different places, stating that if they needed a good truck driver, Chuck Smith was a good truck driver, and I put his phone number on there. I said, now, I have a hard time believing that, Trudy, that somebody would find a card in Knoxville, Tennessee, and make a phone call based on a business card. She said, well, I don't know about any phone call or anything, but that could be how this John Rogers got a hold of Chuck Smith. Needless to say, Chuck Smith has not been seen since. I re-interviewed Chuck Smith's father-in-law, who took him to the Greyhound bus station on that Sunday morning. I think it was on March 28th. And he saw Chuck put one foot on the step to the bus. Did not actually see him get in. But he said, I turned around because he walked all the way out to the bus, and he had his hand on the rails and had one foot up on the steps. So, he said, I know he got on the bus, and that's the last I seen him. Lynn did not go with him. He drove him over to the bus station from Knightstown himself. Chuck had a little brown bag with a change of clothes, was all he had with him. He has not been seen or heard from since. That's all I know about Chuck Smith. you have any idea who it was that Chuck Smith saw with Laura Morris? Fact is, after he told me the story... I took several pictures of possible suspects to him, and he could not identify any of the people. The description was a general description. 5'10", medium built, kind of motorcyclish looking, had a chain-driven billfold and a couple of tattoos on his arm. That was the description, which matches about 50% of white male Caucasians in the United States. So nobody could ever determine who that was? No. There's no question in your mind, though. He was telling the truth? I think I'd bet my life on it, John. All right, sure. I'm going to stop this tape and go on to the third one. Time is 1630 hours. Okay, time is 1632. This is the third tape with John Munden. Okay, John, I think the last thing we talked about was Chuck's disappearance. Based on this latest development in the case, being the disappearance of Chuck Smith, I again had a conversation with Paul Weiler, and Paul is becoming more interested in the case. Not that he wasn't before, but he was getting some pressure from downtown, or Pendleton, not to work on it because there just wasn't enough there. But because of the latest development, he evidently talked somebody into at least taking the time to sit down and go through it, and maybe checking a couple of things with me. Uh... Our first official act occurred on April 15th. The day before, we had decided to go and interview Danny and Brenda Chalice. I knew them quite well by this time, 
but I wanted to bring Paul up to date. And I thought, you know, these all during this whole thing are the only two people that I could halfway even believe anything they told me. The rest of the family, to me, was nothing but damn liars. But it seemed like Brenda and Danny always tried to work with me, and they even put down Steve and Trudy a lot. This is her own mother and father, and I felt I could put, if I could trust anybody, it would be those two of the whole family. So that was where I wanted to start. Paul agreed. So the next day we went to Chalice's apartment in Indianapolis, knocked on the door, and I was greeted by Trudy Snedeker. And I thought that was real interesting because I had just talked to her the night before when she was in Florida. The next day, about eight hours later, she's in Indianapolis at Chalice's apartment. Chalice did not know we were coming over. She just happened to be there. So I introduced Paul to everybody there, and uh, the five of us then sat down and talked for two or three hours. Trudy said she just made a routine visit up here, and I have no reason to disbelieve that. It's just another coincidence in this case, like, I suppose... You know, we left Chalice's apartment, and on the way back to the... our county, I got a radio dispatch for me to stop and call the jail, to Signal 10. My first thought was, one of my kids got hurt or something, because I've never received a dispatch to call the jail Signal 10. So I stopped at the first phone booth, and our dispatcher was real upset. Real excited, I should say, not upset and said that Shelby County had just found a body of a female, and they think it might be Laura, and they're not doing anything till you get there. So I went back to the car and told Paul what we had, and so we go down there. And I guess it was just ironic that the same day the Indiana State Police enter the case, the body is found. So we get down there, and the scene was secured by somebody, and I forget who from your outfit, one of your uniforms in Shelby County, nice guy, and basically gave the scene to Paul and I, even though it was out of my jurisdiction. Uh, the Shelby County detectives were there, and uh, everybody worked with us, and they basically gave Paul and I the scene, and says, whatever you want to do. You know, we think it's a good likelihood that it's the girl you've been looking for, for eight months now. As soon as I walked up to the badly decomposed body, there was no doubt in my mind because I could tell by the teeth and some of the jewelry that she still had on the bones. It matched what she had on. We was there at the scene for probably five or six hours, and then we started carting her remains around, trying to get an autopsy done. We started down in Shelby County with an autopsy, and I forget now who her doctor was, or who the county coroner was, but I think he just came off of a tractor out in the field, he didn't know his ass from a hole in the ground about an autopsy, and that was apparent. So I contacted John Pless at Bloomington at that point and told him what I had and asked him if he would do the autopsy. And the state police said that was fine, and the arrangements were made and we took her body down there the next day at the hospital in Bloomington, and Pless did an autopsy. Uh, Paul and I, I'm sorry, that was two days later, Paul and I spent the next two days, almost day and night, trying to find dental records. And we thought we had located some in Houston, and we was going to go out there and get them, 
and then we finally found some locally where she had had some work done at Dr. Pleak's office here in Greenfield. So we took those dental records with us, and uh, Dr. Charles Reddish, I think he's an oral surgeon and has been used in Marion County Courts as an expert witness for dental identification. What's his last name? Reddish. I think it's R-E-D-D-I-S-H. Okay. Um, he looked at the x-rays and said there was no doubt in his mind that was Laura's body. So that's how we made positive ID was on the dental records. If I can jump in here for a question. Uh-huh. At the scene where their bullets were covered? Yes. Okay. Uh, do you want to talk about the scene for a few minutes before we go on? Yeah, if we could, if that's okay. I need to interject here for a minute that I would like to talk to you about the scene in more detail, but there are two very large paragraphs redacted from this section, so I'm just going to pick up in mid-conversation where they finally let us in on it. I think she had sex that night, the night that, whatever night she was killed. Uh, I've been asked several times whether I think she was killed in that field or not. The evidence would support that theory that she was killed there, but the psychics... I don't know how you feel about psychics, and I'm not sure I know how I feel either. But uh, they all, without exception, say that she was killed someplace else, and her body was taken down there, and she was shot there to make it look like a different type of crime. I don't know. I do know that three different independent psychics that did not know one another from three different states led me to within a mile of the body eight months prior to that. And because of something mystical, I guess, about the county line, I chose not to go any further into Shelby County. But uh, had I done what their instinct said, maybe we would have located her body sooner. I don't know. Uh, these same psychics told me between 10 and 20 things about the crime they shouldn't have known unless they were involved unless they do have some psychic power. So I don't know how much stock to put in a psychic's impressions. Can I ask who the psychics were? One of them was a Greta Alexander from Illinois. She has a radio show that I know for a fact that your department has used on several occasions. That's how I got a hold of her, through one of your detectives in Indianapolis. And uh, Malcolm came up with a psychic that he had heard about from Lansing, Michigan, and his name was Ross Peterson. His son is a state trooper in Michigan. Malcolm and I drove up there and talked to him one night, about two months, I guess, after this all started, back in probably October of 81. We talked to him, and he agreed to come down here, and like I said, they all took us within a mile of the body. Malcolm had one, I had one, and collectively, we decided not to go any further. But uh, some of the things they told us uh, kind of makes you scratch your head and wonder how much ability they have to tell you what happened. And, you know, we can get into that later. That's not necessarily factual. And I want to talk about the facts of the case here. Uh, we got off on another tangent. We were talking about the body and those three slugs at the scene. I think the last thing I said was, I don't know whether she was killed there or not. If you forget about the psychics, there would be no doubt in my mind that she was killed there. The other thing that bothers me 
and bothers Paul too, and bothers a lot of people. If she was placed there, or shot there in August, or September, or October of 81, I think the farmer should have seen her body when he picked corn. The farmer himself has a problem with that. He does not think the body was there when he picked the corn in October. He does admit he thinks he picked that part of the field at nighttime. But he said, I would have seen that. Now, I don't know whether the farmer is saying that to try and save face, because he may have made a mistake and didn't see her, or what, but... Was there any indication that the bones or anything had been run over, or was that even a... No, no. Fact is, Paul and I went out and measured the combine, and I think it took about a half day, and we calculated. The farmer was not exactly sure where he started, and that would have an impact on what rows the wheels were in at that time. We checked both ways, from both directions, so no matter how he started, those wheels would not have run over her body. So I don't know whether that helped us or hurt us, but we determined that he could have missed the body, because the wheels would not have run over her torso during the picking. But now the farmers told all the neighbors. There's no doubt in my mind that she was not there in October when I picked the corn. And the psychic says the farmer's right because she wasn't there in October. She was dead, but she wasn't there in October. I told this to Pless, and he says there's no way I can tell whether she had been dead for a month or two months and then later shot. He said, I can't tell. So, Pless didn't help me a whole lot. Uh, that's basically the scene as I remember it. We took a bunch of aerial photographs. Your people, Ron Bruce, I suppose you guys know Ron. He and Paul were kind of in charge of the scene. But the next day, Bruce Smith, I think was the sergeant in charge of investigations at Indianapolis at the time. Does that sound right? Bruce Smith? Uh, he elected to let Paul and I have the case, because we had done all the legwork up to that point. Oh, Bill Smith was the investigative coordinator then. Bill Smith, right. He's the one that made the decision to let Paul and I keep the case instead of Ron Bruce. Ron Bruce said, hey, I don't know anything about it anyway. Uh, there was an agreement made between Malcolm, who was sheriff at the time of our county, and I can't think of the sheriff of Shelby at that time, that they would work with us on anything that we wanted to do, but we could basically have it because they were considering it a continuance of a crime that would have started in Greenfield. So we never had any jurisdictional problems. Uh, so that's basically how we found her body at that point, on April 15th. We had a confirmed homicide. Uh, it took us three days to do the identification as a result of dental records, and uh, prior to even discovering the body, an unusual event took place that bears noting. Uh, probably within two days after this all started, back in August, uh, Steve Snediger came into my office and uh, said, I know you're a small department, and he says, I know you don't have enough men to work on it, and maybe you can't justify it to your sheriff, Malcolm. Uh, you're working a lot of hours on this. Uh, he says, can I pay some of your reserves and deputies to help out? And I said, well, that's a little unusual. I don't know. You're right, we don't have many men. 
and there are a lot of people that could be talked to. But this was highly unusual. And uh, he said, well, I'd be glad to pay them. And I said, well, he says, surely you let your guys work part-time at the job. And I said, yeah. He said, well, what's the difference in this and that? And I said, well, none that I can think of that I suppose. So, uh, I said, let me talk to Malcolm and I'll get back with you this afternoon. So he left and came right back in within five minutes and had a brown paper bag and he dumped it on my desk. It was all $100 bills and I had never seen that much money in my life. And I said, what is this? He said, well, I want you to get some of your deputies to start working on this. And he says, if we wait until you talk to Malcolm, hell, you know, my daughter could be dead. He said, I want to do something now. He said, uh, how much do one of them polygraph machines cost? And I, I don't know, why? He said, well, if we could buy one of those, maybe you could start bringing all these people in all her friends and boyfriends, and start running them on polygraph. Let's eliminate them that way. I said, Steve, that's not the way we investigate. You know I'm not going to ask somebody to take a polygraph test unless we have reason to. We're not going to have a wholesale roundup of people and ask them to be submitted to a lie detector. He said, well, that's the way state police does it, isn't it? I said, well, I don't know. But this is not state police. You know, we're not going to do that. So he got a little bit irate. He said, if money's the problem, I don't think you guys have one, do you? I said, no, we use PSE, but I'm not going to ask anybody to take a PSE test at this point either. So I said, put the money back in the sack. So he said, hey, I want you to take it. And he said, just show me who works on what. And he said, if you need more, I'll give you more. So about that time, Malcolm walked down the hallway. I said, Malcolm, come in here. Malcolm looked at my desk. He said, what the hell is going on? I said, Steve Snedeker wants to take some of our deputies and reserves. and He wants to pay them by the hour to do some footwork and start tracking down some of these people. He said, what do you think? I said, I don't know. You're the sheriff. Whatever you want to do. I can use all the help I can get. Now, if he wants to pay for it, that's fine with me if you don't have a problem with it. I don't care. Whatever you want to do. So Malcolm put the money in the safe there at the jail, and we kept track of everybody's hours, and at one time, we had about 25 people working on it. Some of Greenfield's officers were working our regulars, and reserves. He was paying $10 an hour to chase ghosts, as far as I'm concerned. But it was his money. If he wanted to spend it, our guys loved every dime of it. Well, what he didn't know was, I turned the tables on him. I used some of his money to do a surveillance on him. I paid some of our people to watch him. Our people lost him about a week later for the whole day. I got irate. Here I'm paying three guys with Snedeker's money, $10 an hour, and they lose him? Trained police officers, not reserves, 
but regular officers. So that night, needless to say, when Steve called me and uh, said, I guess you wondered where I've been all day, I was, I wanted to say yeah. You know, three of our guys lost you, but I didn't. I said, well, I was a little concerned, but I figured you had some business to take care of. Tried to save a little bit of face. He said, well, if you want to come down, I'll tell you all about my day trips. So I said, okay. So Malcolm was just getting ready to leave. I said, Malcolm, go down to Snedeker's with me. I said, something's ain't quite right here, because he's wanting to tell me where he's been today, and I didn't even have to ask him. He said, well, I know you want to know, because I think Bradbury was one of them. I don't know who the others were. Uh, I know you've lost him today. He thought it was kind of funny that we were using Snedeker's money, and somehow he slipped out of our hands. So Malcolm said, yeah, I'll go down with you. So we walked in and sat down, and I think she fixed Malcolm a Pepsi, and I had a cup of coffee. Well, he says I had some business to take care of today in Chillicothe, and while I was there, I bought some cemetery plots. I said, for what? He said, well, it's something we've talked about for a long time, and he says, now that it looks like we've lost a daughter, when we find her, I want to have a nice place to put her. Again, I thought that was a little unusual, but there's a lot of things unusual about this family. I kind of looked at Malcolm, and he looked at me like, this is par for the course, I guess. So uh, he said, I really did go to Chillicothe today. I don't want you to think I've just been out doing stuff on my own. I said, Steve, I didn't ask you what you was doing today. It was apparent that he wanted me to know that he was in Chillicothe. I mean, he went out of his way. Fact is, he said, I'll show you I was in Chillicothe. And again, I said, Steve, I didn't ask you about Chillicothe. He went out to his car. It was a 76 or 77 Silver Mark IV that he had parked in the garage. And I asked him why. And he said, well, I don't know what's going on and I don't want nobody to know we're even here, so I'm parking my vehicles in the garage. And he had his truck stored someplace else, and went out to the garage, and I heard the door open, and I heard what I thought was a glove compartment shut, and I heard the door shut again. He came in and handed me uh, some CDs, certificates of deposit, and I kind of added them up, you know. They were in plastic binders, heavy plastic, see-through binders, and uh, as I remember, two of them were cashier's checks, and there was three or four CDs. Quickly, I totaled them up, and it came up to about $800,000. And they all had his name, Stephen C. Snedeker. And one of them said, the National Bank of Ohio, Chillicothe, or something. And uh, I about choked and handed them over to Malcolm. And he looked at them, and Malcolm said, that's a lot of money. He said, yeah, about three-quarter of a million dollars. Malcolm said, what are you doing with that much money, Steve? He said, well, the banks always get my interest messed up. And he says, they put it in the mail, and I've lost some. So he said, I just went over and done my banking and business in person today. 
And he said, I went ahead and closed out a couple of accounts, and I'm going to put it in some of my banks in Florida. It was at that point I said, you're using the word banks. How many banks do you have? He said, about 27 different banks in several different states. And uh, I kind of chuckled. And I says, what are you worth, Steve? He said, well, I don't know, several million dollars. But he said, don't tell Uncle Sam. And you know, this is the way he always talked to Malcolm and I. You know, just like I ain't paying a whole lot of taxes. But uh, I'm just a good old boy. You don't have to tell anybody. And quite frankly, I was not concerned. And I'm still not concerned about internal revenue. But I am concerned about whether he's killing people or not. So, uh, I says, let's get back to the cemetery plot. That's a little unusual, isn't it, Steve? He said, well, like I told you, we've talked about it for several years, and uh, I want to make sure that we're all buried together as a family. And he said, I wanted those provisions made. And while I was over there, he said, I closed my accounts, and I thought I'd, because that's where we're from, I thought I'd go ahead and buy some cemetery plots. Well, he did. He bought nine of them. He paid cash for them paid $4,300 to have a special stone put right in the center of it that said, Snedeger family, or something. A year or so later, I made a trip over there and talked to the people, and he actually paid cash for it. They didn't want to take that much cash, but he insisted on cash and no checks. Steve does not pay for anything with a check. It's cash. There's no paper trail that way. Nah, uh, so anyway... Malcolm and I left there, and kind of chuckled coming back to the jail, that he was up to something, because he went out of his way to make sure that we seen that much money, and to make sure that we knew that he said, anyway, that he went to Chillicothe. We never could prove that he went to Chillicothe that day. We do know about that time is when the records show that he bought those cemetery plots, so he could have been there, but he could have been there for another reason too that we don't know about. I only mentioned that because the whole day seemed a little unusual, to say the least. Uh, I got off on another tangent, and I don't know what I was talking about before I backstepped. You talked about the money. How much money did he bring in here originally? Ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand? In cash. In cash? Right. And I think we used something like sixty-three hundred dollars of it or something, and he got the balance. Okay, you're talking about the surveillance and things. Did you have other people? I mean, were you were there other officers following other possible suspects or things? Or how did you... What he, what he considered suspects, I didn't. But if he wanted to donate, as far as I'm concerned, it was donation to each one of the deputies' families and some of the Greenfield officers. And I'm not sure, but I think a couple of state troopers worked on that too. It was good money to them. If they wanted to sit there and watch somebody that didn't do anything at $10 an hour, they was glad to do it. We went through 6800 of his money in about two weeks. And you know, he got the balance and he wanted to pay more. I said, Steve, there's nothing else to look at. You know, these people are not guilty of anything. And I didn't care if you gave us $100 an hour. We're not going to do it because I just feel like we're taking advantage of you at this point And we're not going to do it. So we didn't. He never caught on that you were surveilling him, too? I think he did. But our guys told me 
Uh, he didn't see us, but I think he did. You think that's the reason why he called you that day and wanted you to know where he'd been? I think so. I really do. Uh, that's the only logical thing I can think of. And Malcolm and I talked about that possibility. Uh, I know where I was before I got on that. Uh, after we had made positive ID of the body, I called the Snedeker family and told them that we had positively identified the body as being Laura's and that they could go ahead and make funeral arrangements. Steve says, I done that yesterday. I says, you were awful sure of that, Steve. Well, he says, I called the funeral home in Chillicothe and told them we thought it was our daughter and told them the whole situation so they could go ahead and start getting things ready. And if it wasn't, I would go ahead and pay them for the trouble they had gone to. So, I said the body's going to be released to, you know, this afternoon. If you want to give me the name of the funeral home, I'll tell the hospital down there, and they can come pick her up. And those arrangements were made. Before I called and told Steve that, Paul had never talked to Steve and Trudy about the case, and he wanted to meet them. So, I made arrangements. Or, Paul and I talked before calling Steve, and had decided that we not only wanted to talk to them, but we wanted to talk to them before the funeral. And we both knew that was a little bit tacky, but we chose to do it anyway, because nobody's ever accused us of being untacky. So, uh, I told Steve, I said, you know, Paul Weiler's with the state police. He's working with me on the case, and we want to sit down and talk with you. And he said, okay. He said, when do you want to do that? And I say, tomorrow. He says, that's the day before the funeral, John. I said, yeah, I told you we're going to get this solved and we're going to get started now. He said, now, I don't think that's right that we sit down and talk. You know, here we're in mourning over my daughter and you want to talk about the case? Surely it can wait till after the funeral. I said, I'd rather do it, you know, before the funeral. And he said, well, if it has to be that way. I want you to know that I don't really like that. I said, well, there's not a lot of things I have to do that I don't like, Steve, but this is one that we're going to do. So he said, well, I can't come back over there. I've got all my family here. And I said, well, we're not talking about you coming over. We're going to go to the trouble because we're putting you on short notice. We're going to be nice. We're going to come over there. He said, okay. But he said, I still don't think it's right. I'm going to turn this tape over, John. In the next episode, we will continue with the interview of John Munden. Stay tuned.